This is Radio Sustain, a journal of fair trade, resilient rural communities, safe food, and a healthy environment. Brought to you by IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. This edition of Radio Sustain is for Monday, February 5th, 2007. I'm Tyson Acker at IATP in Minneapolis. Today on the program, Alex Farrell from UC Berkeley talks about California's low-carbon fuel standard. IATP's Mark Muller describes the changes lurking behind the ethanol boom. But first, we talk with Percy Schmeiser about his six-year court battle with Monsanto over GMO seed patents and contamination. Percy Schmeiser is in the battle of his life against one of the world's most powerful agribusiness companies. For much of his life, Schmeiser has been growing canola and perfecting his seeds on his farm in Saskatchewan, Canada. Then one day, Monsanto representatives showed up and tested his crop, discovering that it contained elements of the company's patented Roundup Ready canola. But Schmeiser had never bought Monsanto's canola seed. He speculates that it drifted from a neighboring farm or truck driving by. Monsanto took Schmeiser to court, and the result has been one of the most watched cases involving farming and genetically modified crops in the world. We talked with Schmeiser over the phone from his Saskatchewan farm. A corporation like Monsanto has a patent on a gene, and when they insert it into uh, a seed, they claim ownership of, of not uh, only that seed, but anything that is produced from the seed. If a farmer is contaminated, it doesn't matter how, whether it's cross-pollination, direct seed movement, a farmer or an organic farmer or a tree plant or gardener no longer owns those seeds or plants. They become the ownership of Monsanto under patent law. Now, uh, everything that Monsanto came after me originally in regards to fines, technology fees, and so on, they lost. I didn't have to pay Monsanto anything. But what was not right is that I had to pay for my legal expense all the way to Supreme Court, five or six years of battle. Monsanto had to pay their own legal fees. And it was a test case for Monsanto to see how far they could exercise control over farmers' use of seeds and uh, plants through patent law, and that's what they really was all about. My my legal bill was over $400,000 to stand up for the rights of farmers and gardeners and so on. And on the issue of who owns a gene, who owns a life form, a new life form, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that Monsanto's patent on a gene is valid. And wherever that gene arrives into any higher life form, Monsanto owns and controls that higher life form. That now has vast implications because where do you stop? A seed or a plant is considered a higher life form. What about a bird, bee, animal, even a human being? There are more questions than there are answers now. And what has been the effect of that ruling on your plant breeding operation and, and canola in general in, in Canada? My wife and I were seed developers in canola for over 50 years. And basically, it stops any research or development by farmers of uh, new varieties of seeds or plants suitable for their own soil and climatic conditions. It, uh, it really puts a control over farmers, control over the seed supply, and that's another big reason. The total control of the seed supply by corporations now and ultimately gives them control of the food supply. But if you own and control a substance or a life form and you put it into the environment, 
where you cannot control it, especially seeds or plants, then you should be liable for the damages you do, not only to the environment, but also to privacy of farmers' rights to grow the crops they want to grow. Can't regret my bad Percy Schmeiser is a farmer in Saskatchewan, Canada. More information on his court case is available at percyschmeiser.com. That's P-E-R-C-Y-S-C-H-M-E-I-S-E-R.com. California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger set a goal to develop the world's first greenhouse gas standard for transportation fuels. Dr. Alex Farrell, director of the University of California at Berkeley's Transportation Sustainability Research Center, will direct Governor Schwarzenegger's low-carbon fuel standard study to decide what the standard will be, how it will work, and what impact it could have on global climate change. We sat down with Dr. Farrell to learn more. The low carbon fuel standard is a proposal by Governor Schwarzenegger to have in California a reduction in the global warming impact of transportation fuels. And so the production and the use of transportation fuels causes greenhouse gases of various sorts to be released all through the production chain, from the extraction of petroleum through refining, and then in the tailpipe as well. And if we think about biofuels, it's in the production of the feedstock and the processing, and then also in the combustion. And the idea of the low carbon fuel standard is we will measure these greenhouse gas emissions, and we will certify certain fuels as lower greenhouse gas emissions, low carbon, if you will. And the average for the state will go down over time. This will accompany improvements in vehicle technologies, so vehicles require less fuel. And so we've got two effects going on. The vehicles require less fuel to move you down the road, and the fuel has a lower greenhouse gas impact for each unit of fuel. And overall, the idea is to allow companies to devise their own strategies to meeting this standard and allow a variety of new technologies and new fuels to become more competitive, moving towards what I think is a market for environmentally preferable fuels. What do you think such a standard would mean for biofuels in the future? I think biofuels have a real natural advantage, or I think they can have a natural advantage. So biofuels are not fossil fuel, obviously, and so they have lower greenhouse gas content but only if they're made in an environmentally preferable way. And in fact, the low carbon fuel standard is a way to incentivize investment and innovation for new technologies to improve the environmental performance all along the production chain of the biofuels, from the feedstock production to the processing and to the delivery. And so I think there is a really good opportunity for the biofuel sector to grow as long as they learn to produce fuels that have low greenhouse gas content. What kind of uh, greenhouse gas reductions could result from this kind of standard in California, and, and could this work nationally as well? Well, the University of California, Berkeley, where I'm at, and the University of California, Davis, are currently undertaking a study to answer this question of just how low can we go, if you will. And uh, we look forward to talking with a lot of different stakeholders and 
putting together an analysis that helps the state think about this. I think this is a very exciting idea, and I think it's a very interesting way to proceed because it is a way to get at a part of the energy system that's otherwise hard to manage. And I do think that there's a great deal of potential for it to be used elsewhere. In fact, just in the last couple of days, the European Union has announced essentially the same thing, that they will have a low carbon fuel standard in Europe. And over the last couple of weeks, the United Kingdom, uh, England has been putting this sort of proposal forth for their renewable transportation fuel obligation. And overall, I think what this means is globally, we're beginning to see biofuels markets transform themselves into markets for what I call green biofuels, and that this is very applicable around the world. Dr. Alex Farrell is director of the Transportation Sustainability Research Center at the University of California, Berkeley. More information can be found at their website, www.its.berkeley.edu slash sustainability center. The ethanol industry is booming in the United States, gobbling up a growing portion of the nation's corn production. What impact could ethanol's growth in the U.S. have on corn exports from the U.S.? To find out, we sat down with IATP's Mark Muller, co-author of a new report, Staying Home, How Ethanol Will Change U.S. Corn Exports. Well, I think the incredible growth in ethanol production is probably the, the most dramatic change we've had in Midwest agriculture in, in more than a generation. We're going to have to come to the point, probably in the next few years, that corn is not the solution. So our hope is that as we continue to grow this industry, that the, the cellulosic ethanol, the gasification, the opportunities to use these prairie grasses and trees and other more renewable sources provides a tremendous opportunity for the, the Midwest environment and as well as farmers for diversifying uh, what they're growing. Right now, the growth in ethanol has been largely a Midwest phenomenon. The states traditionally have been Iowa and Minnesota, and now states like Nebraska and South Dakota and Illinois are coming on more and more so. Uh, what has been interesting, though, is that a lot of the demand for ethanol has come from the coast. It's come from California, New York State, and, and some of the environmental concerns that they have with the uh, oxygenates and fossil fuel use. And we might see some shifting, and there have been several plants that have been proposed more along the coast. Uh, but most of the corn is grown here in the Midwest. Uh, so it has affected the Midwest more, but I think that's going to change in the future. In states like Minnesota, we have really benefited from having some incentives for having more smaller farmer-owned ethanol plants rather than the larger corporate investment owned. But unfortunately, that seems to be changing. It's not so much a Main Street investment as it is a Wall Street investment now. And, and when that happens, we're not retaining the value in the Midwest as much as we used to. And, and so that has to be concerned. I think that's something that both at the state and federal level, all policymakers have to look at, is how we can retain the benefits and the value of this great new market as much local as we can. We need to have policies that maintain a fair price for farmers. Because even though we have high prices now, in another couple of years, that might not be the case. 
A second issue is the Conservation Reserve Program, and there's been more and more calls for getting land out of these reserve programs and getting them into corn production because we have such a high demand for corn. That doesn't really help in the long term. What we have to address is the fact that we need to get the environmental benefits that we can from Midwest agriculture and from our policy and, and not get rid of that for the short-term boom in corn right now because we have to maintain the long-term productive capacity of our landscape. And that means having a good soil quality, good water quality, and keep your farmers on the land. And one last uh, farm policy issue that I think needs further consideration, and actually uh, Representative Colin Peterson in Minnesota has been wonderful on this, is looking at an energy reserve program. Just like the Conservation Reserve Program sets aside land for environmental benefits, the Energy Reserve Program would set aside land that would be specifically for energy production. And so that we could start growing the switchgrass and then the prairie grasses, uh, the mixed perennials that would really provide a lot more biomass and then really help kickstart this industry that would utilize that product in the next generation of biofuel production. Mark Muller is director of IATP's Environment and Agriculture Program and co-author of Staying Home, How Ethanol Will Change U.S. Corn Exports, which can be found at iatp.org. Radio Sustain is a project of IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. Find us on the web at iatp.org. Radio Sustain is produced by Ben Lilliston. Our editor is Matthew Foster. The music on the program is Tall Fiddler by Deo, Ophelia's Song by Pan, and Someone Turning by Arctic. I'm Tyson Acker. Thanks for listening. Your skin.